Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your Twitter heretic in residence and Religionless Church host, Mesa Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Shelley Yael Dennis. Dr. Shelley is the faculty chair of Health Sciences and Sustainability at Rio Salando College in Tempe, Arizona. She also recently released Edible Entanglements on a political theology of food. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Isadora. Isadora is a pop artist from California. You can get connected with both Dr. Shelley and Isadora in their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, mesameninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Yeah, the love I never could. I hope that God can teach
Today, we have Dr. Shelley Yael Dennis, uh, and I just found out that's how you say that, uh, that name, Yael, such a great name. Uh, and, and Dr. Dennis, you are the Faculty Chair of Health Sciences and S Sustainability at Rio Solando, Solando College in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, and so you are also not only just that, you're an author, and I'm sure you are lots of other things, uh, Dr. Dennis, but... I'm curious, who is Shelly Yael Dennis to Shelly Yael Dennis? Um, well, you know, I think first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a family member. I am a mom. I have uh, three adult children and a grandson. I am a member of a traditional egalitarian Jewish congregation. Um, and I'm a, I'm a friend to many, many people. I've moved around a lot, and I have pieces of my heart scattered from one end of this country to the other. Um, and I'm someone who's passionately concerned about what's going on with climate change, what's going on with uh, the risks that we face to our food system due to climate change, and what's going on in our political scene, not just in the United States, but really around the world. So, I mean, so you do lots of different things. And uh, as I mentioned before, you are also an author. Is this your first book by any chance? Or are you are you an, a veteran? Are you a novice in the book writing world? Where, where are you at? So I'm a, this is my first book, yes. And I did just finish my uh, doctoral studies a couple of years back. Um, and, I, you know, it's funny because I, you asked me who I am to myself. And, and who I am is someone who's embedded in social networks. I mm. went back to school. Um, I was a physician for a long time. Time. I was a psychiatrist in particular. I went back to school because I have a deep faith conviction that we need to rethink our relationship with ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And I went, I went back to study it in large part because I am passionately concerned about all of the people I love. Mm. And I imagine that everybody on this planet has, has skin in this game. Mm -hmm. We all love somebody who's at risk in climate change. So, you know, I don't, I don't really, I guess, lead with my professional credentials in terms of who I am to myself, who I am as a person in relationships, and I care deeply about the things I care about. As we mentioned, uh, your first book, Edible Entanglements, which I, I mean, you, you mentioned before that you studied with Catherine Keller, and that's just like entanglements. I mean, it's just a, it's a classic Catherine Keller type of word that you would hear. Uh, but when you were writing Edible Entanglements, what was something that was a surprise or an unexpected learning that you made uh, while writing the book? So it's going to be ironic because I was concerned about how climate change would impact food. But the biggest surprise was the importance of global food trade to the development of the concept of sovereignty as we currently know it. So the, the modern concept of sovereignty that undergirds the nation state in large part arose to legitimate global food trade. 
currently, um, especially since about 2001, after 9-11, it's become apparent that the concept of the nation state and national sovereignty is being challenged by global trade. And in particular, global food trade is now undermining the concept of the nation state and the concept of sovereignty as we know it. And I think that was the biggest surprise to me. What was something that you learned about yourself while writing the book? Something I learned about myself? I would have to say what I learned about myself in writing the book is that I am not a person who believes in easy answers. Hmm. While I'm socially progressive, I wouldn't say, and I definitely support the food sovereignty movement, I don't believe any one stance or any one perspective is the one way out of the mess we're currently in. I reject those easy answers. I believe that relying on one way is what got us into this mess. So we don't need to find the one replacement for fossil fuels. We need to find many replacements for fossil mm. fuels. Mm -hmm. Diversification is really what we need to be doing. Same thing goes for agriculture. Agroecological methods are really important. Controlled environments are probably also very important. Increasing urban agriculture and local food hubs will be important. And some degree of what has come to be known as conventional agriculture or high input agriculture will continue to be necessary. We need to diversify and do things in a more intentional mix with a greater awareness of the potential unintended consequences of our actions. Mm -hmm. there, there are so many things that you could study in theology. Why food in particular? I initially went back to school thinking I would study religion and ecology in a really broad way, and I was very concerned about climate change in particular. This is a very weird sort of synchronous story, but I was standing in Powell Bookstore in Portland, Oregon, when I was visiting a friend, and I was looking at the bookshelves, and I wish I could remember the books I was seeing. I'm sorry I can't, but I saw a few books on the state of our food system, and I realized I'm not worried about getting warm. I'm worried about starving to death. <laughs> um, because as climates get disrupted, it becomes harder and harder to grow food. A lot of people say, oh, we'll adapt, we'll adapt. And humans can adapt, that's true. But the food we eat can't adapt as quickly as we might like it to adapt. And the more reliant we get upon monoculture, the less likely we are to find adaptive foods. Monoculture is extremely vulnerable to pests, as one example. And while monocultures and um, in particular GMOs promise that you need less irrigation, less pesticides, that turns out not really to be true over time. If climate disruption is a threat to our agriculture, and we see this right now um, in the Midwest, there are farmers who are now saying they, are, will, they will have zero income this year due to flooding. If a flood happens at the wrong time, if a frost happens at the wrong time, that can wipe out an entire crop. And if we're monoculture cropping, 
in an entire state, that'll wipe out the whole, that will wipe out numerous crops. And this is something we can expect to happen again and again and again. In addition to wiping out the crops, look at threats to uh, the supply chain and the transport pathways. Um, I was living in New Jersey when Superstorm Sandy hit. There were three different ways of getting petroleum products to the state of New Jersey, and all three of those supply chains were were shut down entirely by Superstorm Sandy. When you went to the grocery store, it looked post-apocalyptic. There was no food left on the shelves, and this was three or four days after the storm. There were people who didn't have electricity on two weeks later. People were relying on generators, and I was hearing stories on the news of lines at gas stations and people pulling guns on one another <laughs> over gasoline. Yeah, it's pretty intense. So when the supply chain... It's like the it's like Black Friday, it, but for food. Like, yeah, and so, um, you know, threats to the supply chain and threats to actually even producing the crops to begin with before it even makes its way through the supply chain are pretty significant in the context of climate change. And that really is hugely concerning. What I also learned is that the way we produce food contributes about a third of our greenhouse gas emissions, the way we produce and distribute food right now. And not only is it bad for the planet, it's also bad for people. Um, the industrialized agriculture is contributing significantly to the obesity epidemic, metabolic syndrome, in, and that's in a you know, place where people can afford food. We're getting sick from the food we eat, and then there are about 7 million people a year who die every year due to lack of access to food. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty messed up system. With the system being completely messed up, why is sovereignty in particular such an important concept when thinking about and understanding the politics of food? Sovereignty is important, as I said earlier, is that it was in large part for the purposes of global food trade that the concept of natural sovereignty was initially developed. Recently, the food sovereignty movement has proven itself one of the most potent challengers to transnational agricultural trade, or what we know as the industrialized agriculture, both an agribusiness as usual. So it appears that sovereignty simultaneously drives and thwarts transnational trade, including agricultural trade. The historical development of the concept of sovereignty has received very little academic attention, and sovereignty as a theological concept, as it operates in food politics, has received no attention whatsoever. Since the most potent challenger to business as usual goes under the name of the Food Sovereignty Project, I thought it would be really interesting to take a deeper look at how that concept operates in food politics and the implicit cosmological, anthropological, and theological assumptions that are traveling in that secular political arena. How 
does the way we think about God's sovereignty in particular uh, influence the way then we think about food sovereignty and and, and how f- sovereignty affects the politics of food? So how do, how does the the two uh, enmesh with one another? Uh, God's sovereignty and then the sovereignty that uh, it affects the way we we organize politically around food. So the sovereignty of God. If you are going to talk about a traditional theological model, and if you're going to maybe draw a little bit on Carl Schmitt's sense of political sovereignty, the sovereignty of God basically says that God is transcendent. God is outside of our system. And when we have the kind of breakdown in our system that brings us to our knees and we need to be rescued, when we need redemption, God can change the rules of that system by way of a miracle and pull us out. So the solutions in that traditional theological model don't come from within the system. They come from outside of the system, from somebody who's above that system and somebody who is really pretty untouched by that system. Likewise, when we look at food, we rely upon decision makers such as the International Monetary Fund, World Bank, and the World Trade Organization to set an agenda of global trade, and they also incidentally set an agenda of global agricultural practice along with global trade, because that is a very important thing that is being traded, is food. They are outside of our systems. They're not within our And we rely upon them as these almost godlike figures that are capable of keeping us safe and providing for all of our needs and fixing whatever goes wrong. So we're really relying on that external source of rescue. With Catherine Keller being my favorite theologian ever, and I mentioned to you to, uh, this to you uh, before we started recording, uh, how does your political theology of food relate to Catherine Keller's Tahomic political theology? And you kind of talk a little bit about this uh, in a section in your book. I do. So, yeah, um, how it relates is one of the things she says, and I don't believe it's in, in her, um, the face, face of the deep, but she says, between the absolute and the dissolute, be resolute. And what she means by this is in between the absolute, which would be the absolute certainty of sovereignty, which turns out to lead us in, a, in the wrong direction or the overwhelming despair that we might feel at how much chaos there is, be resolute. And we'll go back into her Tahomic theology with that in mind. There really are no guarantees. We rely upon the notion of a sovereign, especially politically, as someone who can restore order or protect order at whatever expense. We think that our sovereign leaders, or we would like to think that our sovereign leaders, have our best interest in mind. That's kind of what's behind the neo-fascist model, hardening those boundaries, protecting, protecting our security against perceived threats. And that's the absolute model. There's a dissolute model that just throws up its hands and says, there's nothing we can do. This is an overwhelming problem. I'm just a small person. I can't, I can't fight this big system. But the Tahomic 
reality is all creation emerges from chaos. And that's what Catherine Keller really reinforces in Face of the Deep. We have an encounter with chaos. We hover over it as God did in the opening lines of Genesis. We hover over the chaos and we coax new creation and new order from it. We don't whip it into shape. And we don't rely on a God to whip it into shape. That isn't even what a process theology type of God would do. That God is an inside job. It's emergent. We are facing chaos now, and we will continue to face chaos due to climate change. Our sovereign leaders cannot protect us from floods. They can't protect us from hurricanes. They can barely repair the damage after it's been done. That ev almost everybody I know feels a little bit of despair about climate change. And I think the amount of despair you feel is probably inversely proportional to your age. I think 20-year-olds that I know are feeling overwhelming despair that's hard to even look in the face. 70-year-olds think it's all going to be fine. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's a matter of whether you think you're going to be alive when the consequences really get bad. But we can't give into that despair. We have to be resolute, and we have to resolutely continue to coax beauty out of the chaotic situations in which we find ourselves. How does a political theology of food address the reality that both obesity and starvation exist simultaneously? Maybe not in the same parts of the world, but uh, but that they still can exist simultaneously, at least on the same planet. How I, I would say um, we probably in that political theology of food we don't fix that problem with a political theology of food, but we look at that problem and we recognize our profound entanglement with one another. That our very bodies become what they become in the context of socio-political arrangements. And because that is true, we have a responsibility to one another. We live in a very individualistic society that says my, my bodily form is all about my choices, my individual food choices. A political theology of food that roots itself in the entanglement of becoming recognizes that my food choices in large part are already made for me by these sovereign agents, the IMF, the, w, the WTO, Agribusiness, as usual, has already decided what kinds of food will be available at the grocery store for me to choose from, or whether or not there is a grocery store in my area. Vast numbers of people live in food deserts, and in those areas, the food that's available is, by and large, nutrient deficient and calorie excessive, but very cheap and affordable food. A theology of a political theology of food recognizes those systems as the context in which our body becomes. It also recognizes that nobody becomes outside of those contexts. So even those people that we think of as sovereign or outside of our systems that are making decisions at the WTO or the IMF, they too 
become who they become in the context of these systems. And these systems are fluid and constantly in change. So we can affect in a variety of ways the circumstances of our becoming and the circumstances of one another's becoming. What are the ways in which the politics of food are changing in climate change? And you've talked a little, quite, actually quite a bit about this, um, but maybe specifically talking about um, just the, the, some of the, the most uh, egregious changes that are happening uh, with the politics of food uh, in uh, response to climate change. What are some of those things? So I'm, I'm going to ask you if you can clarify your question. Do you mean some of the adaptive responses that we're seeing, or do you mean some of the less adaptive? Yeah, some, sorry. Uh, yeah, some of the less adaptive responses, some of the things that are, are making it much more difficult to, to live in this world uh, in, in response to climate change and, and the, the less adaptive uh, responses uh, from the politics of food side of things uh, to, to uh, increasing climate change. Oh, that's an excellent question. I, I have definitely touched on a lot of this, but yes, the, the push towards industrial agriculture and the push that this is that technology is the only solution, and that industrial agriculture will be the thing that is required to feed the world. Um, I wish I could remember exactly the article that I'm referencing in 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 my head, but there has been a push in in Asia, I believe, in the Philippines, to train people to operate fisheries in a very industrialized manner, and it has been effective at feeding people. It has increased their access to protein, and it has also depleted fish in the area and is driving that area to a situation where there will be no more fish for people to eat. So this push towards the one way of industrialized agriculture is one of the, the less adaptive responses. Back in the 80s and 90s, as developing nations were having their debt restructured with the IMF and the WTO, built into those structural adjustment programs was a push to retool agricultural systems with an eye towards increasing cash crops at the expense of subsistence crops. And what that means is that smaller farmers were being driven out of the market because cash crops require large plots of land, heavy equipment, and a lot of expenditures on seeds, fertilizers, and pesticides. Smallholders were getting themselves in debt for this equipment and were unable to meet their debt and lost their land. Meanwhile, in those same structural adjustment programs, developing nations were prohibited from offering as much in the way of food aid for people. So there were fewer dollars to spend locally, further diminishing income for farmers and putting more economic pressure on farmers and keeping food from people because they didn't have the money to buy food. And there wasn't as much food to buy because the food, because agricultural crops were going for crash for forecast production. So that that's one example. I think the palm industry is another excellent example of a unification, an excessive reliance on one product being palm oil in 
it's very hard to get away from. I don't know if you've ever tried to get away from bomb oil. Very difficult to do. It's in personal care products and almost any kind of processed food that you would buy relies on palm oil. And it's devastating orangutan habitat and devastating landscapes. That's, that's another example. Of it, you know, that push to unify and push towards cash crops is the, is the less adaptive mode of responding to difficulties right now. On the adaptive end, I think even um, the UN and their uh, food and agriculture organization, I think they're realizing that smallholders play a pivotal role in assuring food security in local areas and also are more inclined to farm in sustainable methods. So there is, I wouldn't say a huge widespread push, but there's a growing awareness that we need to increase the number of smallholders worldwide, globally. And her lovely eyes, she had all the guys, but she was looking back at me. Oh, honey, you're so pretty. All these lovely girls, but all I want is her. But all I want is her. Today we have Isadora Ava, and uh, Isadora is a pop artist and are you in california is that the the california connection with jelani is that is that right great yeah so you recently released uh, a new ep and i i was kind of looking around for some of the other uh potential music you might have out there and at least from what i've seen is this like kind of the first recorded release material you've ever you've ever had yeah um back in like 2016 i released like a single but um I took it off all platforms just because I wanted to work on it and like really figure out my sound before I put everything out there. And and this EP that just came out, I was writing and producing it for about two years. And wow. I, I I like finally finished it because a lot of my um, colleagues and like professors have told me that I'm very hypercritical <laughs> of my music. So it took a long process, but. Yeah. What what was that like? I mean, with that part of your temperament and personality of being really hypercritical of your work, um, but then once releasing it, right, like there's kind of this little risk that you take or this sort of feeling like you're letting something go that you really want to keep a hold of until you know it's absolutely perfect, but eventually you know it's just never going to be absolutely perfect and you've got to just yeah. release it. So what what, what was that, uh, that moment like for you then for, you know, once you first saw it on like Apple Music or Spotify or whatever it might have been, uh, what was that like to see and know that this music is out there for the sharing and for the world to listen to? Um, honestly, it was pretty overwhelming, but like, I was really content with the work that I put out because, um, I've shown like close friends and stuff, like little snippets of, of like what will be coming soon and everything. And like finally releasing everything out there. Like it didn't really hit me until like so many people that I didn't know supported my music Mm. was like reposting it, listening to it, like sending me messages saying like, we're so proud of you. And like, I... I just felt so overwhelmed with like the amount of support I got. So So, in addition to that, uh, kind of this hypercriticalness, but then, you know, receiving really great compliments and and people appreciating uh, the music. What's something that you took away from the recording process and releasing it? What was something that you took away that you were really proud of? 
Um, something that I took away that I was really proud of, honestly, the growth that I made from recording and and I'm okay. So I um I major in music at University of the Pacific. Okay. And um, this past semester, I took like a music technologies class, and and a lot of it with my um, producing this EP, it was very like going back to my notes from class and seeing how I can incorporate it and stuff. And and like I've grown so much as a producer and musician, and and a lot of the songs that I wrote on this EP. Um, it started out with afterburns from like my senior mm. year of high school mm. and over time I would just start adding more songs and and like I think over time I I noticed my songwriting process and my sound of how I produce music has completely changed but wow. it still like goes back to my roots and I'm still really proud of everything that's on that EP. One of the things that I'm really curious about is the development of pop music over the last several years. I'm not really too much into that world, but I kind of pay a little bit of attention. And the development of, you know, like really major pop artists being like Katy Perry and Lady Gaga back 10 years ago or so. And now you're seeing this kind of like movement towards this like a little bit edgier, if you will. Like it's less yeah. bubblegummy, if that's the right yeah, term for no, it. I totally get it. Um, but there's kind of this edginess, this mysteriousness to a lot of really popular pop music. Have you noticed yourself taking maybe not only just in the music, the pop music you might be listening to, but in terms of your own music that you're writing, your own pop music that you're writing, have you noticed maybe a little bit of an influence from that kind of little edgier uh, influence of pop music? Oh yeah, totally. Um, I think with all art, um, creation requires influence. So a lot of the music that I listen to obviously has a lot of influence in what I hear. Like it wouldn't be like specific artists, but if I hear something like, like a drum track or like the hi-hats or something Mm -hmm. that I really like, I would want to incorporate that some way in my music and find a way to make it my own. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Who are some of those artists that you were listening to over the last couple of years writing this this album or this EP? Who are some of those artists that you were listening to pretty heavily? Um, I would say it honestly, none of these artists I don't think sound anything like what I produced. Right. No, that's they, that's like, and I think that's the great part of it is like some of the music that you're listening to in some way, shape, or form might be influencing it, but the music itself might not be right. But anyway, yeah. go go ahead. Who, who are who are you listening um, to? I would say Haley Kiyoko is definitely a big one. Um, okay. Billie Eilish, Black mm-hmm. Bear, Oh Wonder. So artists like that that are like in the pop world, but mm-hmm. all have their unique styles, mm-hmm. which I really like. Is there a unifying, uh, maybe musically unifying or lyrically unifying, or something about them that unifies maybe that group of people in particular within pop music that you found or that that really captivated you to be able to listen to them over the course of that time maybe there's a maybe there's a mysterious theme or maybe there's a maybe there's a lyrical theme that really ends up being uh, of influence but anyway is out of those artists that you listed is, is there kind of maybe a unifying theme that you're seeing there that between all of them um i would say listening to their music um, I don't know their their story with writing it, but personally, like I was going through a lot in the past two years of writing this and 
they definitely, when I listen to their songs, you kind of like, I don't know if people have this, but when you listen to a song, sometimes you can like attach it to a memory or something going on in your life. And like, that was a lot of their music. And, and um, I'm sure if you've heard my EP, a lot of it talks about girls who like girls and like same sex couples and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's like very hard for me to talk about personally Mm -hmm. so actually writing it and like putting it out there it's a very vulnerable spot for me to do and um these artists that I listen to like like Billie Eilish she's very dark and some people find it creepy and like I know a lot of parents are like oh don't listen to her because like (laughs) she gives off a weird vibe but like she talks about topics that should be talked about Mm. same with like Hayley Kiyoko she talks about same-sex couples and Mm. and is like a very big influence on like the LGBT community and is a like an artist that um is like representing that community mm-hmm. and and that's really empowering for every like listener and mm-hmm. honestly for me too so like even though I'm an artist I still look up to artists like that so mm-hmm. was there something lyrically then what was that one of the the themes that you were trying to express lyrically throughout the CP yeah um i think when i was writing this Prior to ever releasing music, I used to write with like um, he, him pronouns just Mm. to like filter out my music because I was scared to talk about it. I feel like anyone's scared to put themselves out like that. Mm -hmm. And um, once I kind of just realized like if people support me, they do it and they don't like I just hope they'd respect what Mm. I write. Mm -hmm. Um, Once I just realized to do that and just to not have to filter my art. it was a really big step for me and I was really scared, but knowing that other artists that other artists that are looked as very empowering people and have like, a, a what's the word? Um, I guess a spotlight mm-hmm. and an influence in society. They, yeah. they're normal people, but they, they talk about topics that everyone can relate to. Um, that was a big theme for me. That mm-hmm. was something that I hoped when I wrote my music, it wasn't just, oh, she's writing about girls who like girls. It's it's just a story about two people who yeah. are in love or whatever. Like, the gender shouldn't matter. It should be, like, lyrically, it should just be something that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. So. With, with you, this EP being kind of truly a really authentic album for you, was there something musically that you were trying to also capture uh, that maybe related to that theme of authenticity? Um. I guess musically, the musical delivery for me, um, I know I do want my music to be in like the pop culture Mm -hmm. um, genre, but at the same time, I still wanted to go back to my roots and make sure that everything that I produced is still raw. Like I know there's Mm -hmm. a lot of um, bad talk on people who just like make beats and music with their computer and stuff. And I did a lot of that for this EP, but I still made sure that like, there was like my guitar that I used when I was like 14, like mm. Afterburns track. I recorded that sophomore year and I never did anything with it for a long time. Wow. So I wanted to make sure that like what I started with was still there. And even though I evolved into something new with my music, I still somehow went back to where I started. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, so you release this EP, uh, obviously not a full length album. Is maybe a full length album in the next year or so in the works, or what? Yeah, Do you have actually, any other projects in the works? I have a lot coming up in the works, um, and I'm very excited for all that. While I was making this EP, 
I also produced like over eight other songs that I want to release so badly, oh. but <laughs> I'm still working on and and you'll be expecting it very soon. But yeah, it'll, awesome. there's a lot coming up. Is there any uh, expectation on yourself to maybe do some live shows with with this music as well? Yeah, um, I would totally love to do live shows. I used to like I used to be a performer as a kid and mm. I was in like the acting industry and everything. But once I kind of started realizing I wanted to more go focus on music, um, I tried to put myself out there with little things like open mics and just headlining for bands and stuff. And and then when I started producing this EP, I kind of took a step back from performing because mm -hmm. I wanted to just focus on getting stuff out there. Mm -hmm. And now that it's out, honestly, I would be so down to perform anywhere for anyone. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Isadora. This has been super great to to chat about your music. And uh, yeah, I, I really loved listening to to some of the EP uh, in the last couple of days. And I was glad that we were able to chat about it. And I, I love being able to see somebody's face that made this music. And, and really, that music obviously is really personal and means a lot to them. And then to, to be able to see their face and uh, to he hear them talk about uh, that, the music uh, or what went behind the music I, I don't know there's just something that makes me connect to it a lot more so i really appreciate uh you sharing uh, a lot of what kind of went behind the scenes in, in making this ep no thank you so much thank you for having me How did writing this book and this work in general change your own relationship with food? Um, well, you know, it changed my relationship with food quite a bit. I was a full-throated omnivore when I started writing the book. I still believe that um, choosing to be a vegan, for example, or choosing to be a vegetarian is is a limited solution so it's a solution of limited utility i believe you do have to be um, active at the policy level so i have gotten active at the policy level and i work in a local food network maricopa county food network organization called marco it's a food coalition um so i do team up with other people to make broad system level changes, make policy level changes in my local area. So I think that's one difference. Nonetheless, even though I don't think being a vegan or uh, you know really being absolute about a diet plan is the way out, I definitely notice myself eating much lower on the food chain because I know it reduces my carbon footprint and I know that I know that livestock is treated terribly and that that's you know that's a problem. Simply not eating beef won't change that, but I don't want to participate in that system either.
in addition to some of those things, what what can a person do to participate and support the food sovereignty movement? So food sovereignty is one one of many movements. There are food justice movements, which would be the north, the global north sort of variety of food sovereignty. The food justice movement really talks about getting equal distribution of food in the global north across racial and economic barriers, often using food sovereignty principles. I think there are several things I would recommend. I, I think you can't do this alone, and I think you can't rely on economic, economic support. So it would be ideal to buy fair trade coffee as opposed to buying something cheap that is not fair trade. That would be a really great way of helping farmers in, in developing nations where they're growing our coffee to have lives of worth and dignity. That's a really important thing to do. But I think most importantly, get involved in your local food system. Many cities now have food coalitions or other food network activist agencies. Get involved with that. Try to purchase your vegetables through a CSA or through a farmer's market so that you're supporting your local food producer and that you know your, your farmer. But realize that, again, simply changing your shopping habits won't change the world alone. We are more than just economic units. So I'm going to send this next bit out there knowing this is, this is a hard part. But start to pay attention to the policy level at the national level. Mm. Pay attention to things like GMO labeling. Um, make sure those things get labeled. Why shouldn't they be labeled? Secondly, pay attention to the farm bill. That's where decisions about how agriculture is practiced get made and get implemented at the policy level of our nation. And I understand that the two words together, farm and bill, sounds super boring. But try <laughs> to pay attention to what's getting subsidized, who's getting supported, and how we're distributing food equitably or not to people in need. So I think really thinking about this in a broad way, in a multifaceted way, would be the best thing to do to work for sane, just, and sustainable food. Hmm. I mean, and maybe the last little bit that you could probably add is somehow, some way, shape, or form, overthrow capitalism, right? That's that's the last, that's the, <laughs> that's the easiest one, right? Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know enough about capitalism to know this for a fact and i haven't read that much in a, uh, of adam smith but i don't think that what we're currently doing is what he has in mind um <laughs> I, I don't think this is really capitalism um personally i think there's something off here mm. but yeah so my, my last question uh is how can listeners get connected with you and your work Get connected with me and my work. If you want to connect to me personally, um, it would be great to email me at my work address, shelly.dennis at riosalado.edu. My work is published as a book called Edible Entanglement on a Political Theology of Food. And I would love it if you gave it a read and a look and email me and ask questions. Yeah, that would be great. I don't currently have my own website. Those are the two ways. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been really great. I, I loved reading your work. Uh, again, I'm a huge Catherine Keller fan. And, and so anybody who uh, is supported and uh, endorsed by Catherine Keller, I, I'm automatically going to read those people. Uh, and so I, I was really, I really loved your work. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a part of theology that I'm unfamiliar with, both political theology in particular, but also even more particularly, uh, f- uh, the politics of food. Uh, it's something that uh, I haven't thought too much about. And so I really enjoyed reading your book and being challenged um, by a, a lot of what, you, what you've what you researched and learned uh, and then and shared in your book. It was so super great to be able to listen and, and uh, to, to read your work. Thank you. will never change These are such melatonin days She'll never be the same these are such melatonin days. This town will never change. These are such melatonin days. She'll never be the same. These are such melatonin days. This town. If that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from both Dr. Shelley and Isadora, you can find links to connect to them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmeniga.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if religionless church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction now and forever. So be it. When I'm alone Inside these wasted rooms is spring up.